Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Breda Pest Management, the official pest control of UGA Athletics. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. So you kind of know the drill. You know where we are in the college football calendar or the football calendar in general. The season, in a lot of ways, never feels as far away as it does right now. We're just post-Super Bowl. We're still a little ways away from the start of spring practice. We're kind of in the true winter of our offseason here. Now, we believe that there's always college football stuff to talk about. We love that. That's why we do the show each and every day. It cannot be Dog Nation Daily unless you do it each and every day. And that is, of course, what we are all about here. But it does give you the freedom sometimes to sort of stretch your legs and sort of do some things that, that in a different time of year you perhaps would not have the time to be able to do. And so that is what we're going to do today. Uh, this seems like a really good time to sort of make fun of Alabama and laugh at the what is being described as panic, and that's not my word, by the way. That's the word that some around Alabama are using, panic on the part of Alabama fans about how the first month or so on the job for Kalen DeBoer is playing out. You know the story as it relates to Ryan Grubb. Grubb was brought here to be offensive coordinator uh, in Tuscaloosa, only to leave that job and go be offensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks, taking the offensive line coach with him. you got a strength guy that's kind of, you know, moving out there as well. But it's the offensive it's the offensive uh, coordinator position that's causing the most angst around uh, Alabama here right now. I think if you're a Georgia fan, you ought to get your popcorn ready. You ought to settle in and enjoy all of this. It looks like the replacement for Ryan Grubb is going to end up being Nick Sheridan. That's a guy that knows Kalen DeBoer well and a guy that was brought to Alabama to be tight ends coach. Now he's going to get the promotion, it appears, based on some reporting that's out there. He's going to get the promotion to become offensive coordinator here. You know, not maybe the most substantial resume necessarily, but a guy that knows the DeBoer system and a guy that can certainly help Kalen DeBoer implement what DeBoer wants to do. But for a lot of Alabama fans, we're sort of used to, and sometimes I think we overblow, overblow we, would, we would overblow this, but there was always this thought of, ah, oh, Nick Saban's got a master plan. And Nick Saban's always one step ahead of all the competition. Alabama fans had grown very, very comfortable with the notion that somehow, some way, Nick Saban's just in full control of everything with the Alabama program. And he sees six moves ahead. And the thought here is, well, maybe Kalen Moore doesn't quite do that. Because if you're bringing in Grubb, and if Grubb is saying he's the offensive coordinator, but they're never really officially announcing it, he's not showing up on the website, for instance, and there's all this criticism of, well, what did you know and when did you know it? And were you trying to keep this a secret from players to keep him from transferring, as reported by the Seattle Times? You know all about all that. The point is, Alabama fans have seemingly had a lot of reason to worry, so much so that Chris Stewart, who's kind of the sort of the heir apparent to Eli Gold is the Alabama football play-by-play announcer. Uh, Stewart has done away games and been around the Alabama program a good bit. He is the play-by-play announcer for basketball. Kind of the voice of the tide in some respects, at least moving forward. He goes on an Alabama podcast and tries to calm down these as they are being described, panicking Alabama fans. Bama being panicked is fun for UGA. So let's start the pot on this here for a minute. Chris Stewart, the Alabama play-by-play man, trying to tell Alabama fans, oh, there's no need to worry about what's going on with uh, with Kalen DeBoer here right now. Stewart trying to uh, calm the Bama fans. Take a listen to this. You don't know if it's a problem or not until it becomes one. Good point. And at the moment, it ain't a problem. We mm-hmm. ain't had a practice yet. 
hadn't impacted recruiting, to my knowledge, yeah. yet. So, and even if it does, does it mean it can't be overcome? By the time you play the opener, certainly by the time you get through the season, give it a rest. Don't. There's enough to sweat when it's truly a problem. Don't sweat stuff until it becomes one. I don't know Chris Stewart personally. Everything I've been led to believe is he's a good guy. Uh, so no, no beef against him necessarily. But I have to admit that I don't necessarily find that to be the most convincing message of this is not a problem. And even if it is a problem, it's only a small problem. Or as far as I know, you know, th- there's a lot of caveating there. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of, of I think, a, an intentional attempt to, to limit some of that of, listen, this is not impacting recruiting as far as I know. And even if it is, does that mean that it can't be overcome? You know, there's there's an element to which if you are a panicking Alabama fan because your head coach doesn't know who his offensive coordinator is going to be, which, by the way, can we all agree here? It's a pretty important position. You know, the, the idea of your offensive play caller, I mean, uh, the, the sort of late stage of Nick Saban's career was probably saved by his offensive coordinators. Lane Kiffin came on and kind of reinvigorated the program at a time in which Nick Saban was trying very hard to hold on to his old dusty ways. Lane Kiffin kind of came in and sort of breathed new life into the program. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian in 2020 took advantage of kind of a pandemic year in which teams weren't practicing or playing very much defense. And they were able to create this, you know, very, very uh, uh, explosive offense. And they went on to win a national championship. You know, Nick Saban and the kind of late stage version of, of Nick Saban and the sort of late stage version of the Alabama dynasty was really propelled by its offensive coordinator. So the idea that Kalen DeBoer is kind of feeling his way around the dark here, trying to figure out who his offensive coordinator is going to be, I think that's a pretty big deal. And I don't know that Bama fans should be panicked about the fact that as of now, it's not going to be the guy they thought it was going to be. And Nick Sheridan's a guy that they don't really feel like they know very much about. I don't know that panic is the right way to describe that, but it's not good. I mean, I asked Connor Riley on the show yesterday, you know, let's be objective. Let's try to, like, I'm not someone who pretends to be objective, but if we want to try to be objective, let's be objective. Has it been a good start to, you know, Kalen DeBoer's tenure as Alabama coach? And uh, Connor, in his attempt to be a little bit more straight down the middle, said no in a roundabout way. I, I guess it kind of hasn't been. And that's kind of true here, that, that, Maybe panic's not the right way to be about this, but it's not great. You don't know who your offensive coordinator is going to be. And then beyond that, you know, Paul Feinbaum, who typically sort of acts as something close to a mouthpiece for Alabama, was on the uh, radio station WJOX with uh, Greg McElroy and Cole Kubelik, their morning show there. And in talking about Alabama and in saying, by the way, and in saying that Alabama, in Feinbaum's mind, was probably most likely a playoff team still kind of offered a description for the Tide this year that I think if you're an Alabama fan, you don't love. And if you're a Georgia fan, you kind of find pretty entertaining. Paul Feinbaum apparently thinks that in the SEC right now, Alabama's sort of become a little bit of a second-tier SEC team. Listen and see if you hear Feinbaum saying this on with the radio station WJOX this week. I'm not sure I could go much more than that because I think the SEC, and that's not really how we're going to do it, but I see them at least behind Georgia and Texas. And I think they're in the next group. Uh, they're in the next group with a couple of schools like, like Ole Miss uh, and, and Missouri. I, I think they would probably be my, my next school. 
Um, but I, I, I might have had a little more confidence in that a couple of days ago without knowing what the, uh, the OC situation is. So you've got Paul Feinbaum there saying, and eh, that probably still be in the playoff. Keep in mind, there are 12 of those this year, uh, 12 teams in the playoff, and we're expecting at least three of those to come from the SEC. So Feinbaum says, yeah, maybe, probably a playoff team. I was certainly thinking that before the offensive coordinator situation. Now I'm not quite so sure, but – uh, and Feinbaum's own description in mostly being complimentary of Alabama still sort of got them in a second-tier category along with, I mean, keep in mind now, Missouri and Ole Miss. Now, we know Ole Miss has spent a lot transfer portal this offseason, allegedly NIL. They've clearly upgraded the roster. They were a top-10 team a year ago. Missouri sort of had its own kind of zero-calorie version of that there as well. So both Missouri and Ole Miss are you know trying to get better, and we would say based on preseason projections, they've succeeded in doing so. So it's not necessarily a criticism to say you're in the same category of Missouri and Ole Miss, two teams that were essentially top 10 a year ago. But imagine the ears of an Alabama fan hearing that. My team is second tier in the SEC along with Missouri and Ole Miss, and it's Georgia and it's Texas who are leading the way right now. And if you look at the FanDuel over under season win total projections that are out there right now, that bears this out. Bama and Texas both at 10.5, Alabama and the rest a little lower than that. This is also kind of borne out by the updated way too early top 25 from a ESPN Mark Schlebaugh where, you know, Bama at one point was a fourth, fifth, now they're ninth. You know, they no games have been played. You know, that's one thing Chris Stewart said. Hey, nobody's playing a game here. Nobody's even practicing yet. But for now, the perception of Alabama is plummeting even in the way too early top 25s. And fans are panicking so much so that their voices are having to step up and kind of calm the crowd almost like Leslie Nielsen and uh, – was the movie Naked Gun. Nothing to see here. You know, all the explosions taking place in the background. Sort of feels like, you know, there's some of that going on. Feinbaum calling them second tier in the SEC, along with Missouri and Ole Miss. I promise you that's not the neighborhood that Tide fans want to live in. So here, here's the takeaway from a Georgia perspective on this, and obviously we're being UGA-centric. This is just sort of funny. It's fun. Um, I like watching Bama fans panic. I like the new Bama coach, not really knowing who his offensive coordinator is and not getting first choice and all that. Of course, I revel in that. So that, that's a pretty fun thing. Uh, but beyond that, there's also this. Pressure may be the wrong word here, but but opportunity, opportunity bordering on obligation. You know, that, that may be what this creates for UGA, that, you know, Georgia didn't need Nick Saban to retire in order to win a national championship. Georgia was was already able to do that. Georgia got that done. But uh but 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 with Nick Saban no longer being here, there clearly is an opportunity in place, an opportunity to go out and be, you know, the the very best program that you can be and take advantage of the turmoil provided by Nick Saban's retirement and by Kalen DeBoer stepping in and all of the 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 weirdness that seems to create. That the bottom line is while it is entertaining to watch Alabama fans maybe panicking and to see the, the the I guess the recalibration of expectation for the, uh, the the Crimson Tide here. There's also an opportunity for Georgia to take full advantage of that, not just in the 2024 season, but by creating some permanent distance between itself and the Crimson Tide. And the work on getting that done begins as soon as this season. 
My name's Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans, presented today by Breda Pest Management. We are happy to have you with us, no matter how you get to us today, live on video, 10 a.m. across all platforms. Of course, we begin even earlier than that, first and 15, dognation.com, and on the Dog Nation app at 945. Uh, we love doing the show there on video. We're on the radio every single day, Athens Sports Radio, 960 Ref, podcast, wherever you find them across every podcast platform. Just really, really good stuff and glad to have you, no matter which platform you choose to use. We're just happy to have you as a part of our show today. Also, really appreciate our friends at Breda Pest Management who make it all possible. The official pest control provider of UGA Athletics. That means the same pest control company taking good care of Sanford Stadium, taking good care of Stegman Coliseum. By the way, you got a softball going now. You got the Diamond Dogs beginning this weekend, taking care of Foley Field, all of those athletic venues. That is what our friends at Breda Pest Management are all about. They take uh, great care of them, and they want to take great care of you too. But as I tell you a lot, this is more than just the prestige of saying, hey, my termite company is the same one taking care of UGA, the same one that's recognized as the official pest control provider of UGA. Uh, this is more UG Athletics. This is more than just that. This is a business that's been in place since 1975. Multi-generation uh, reputation of great service across our market area. And they want to put that history and that lineage and that heritage to work for you by saving you money when you make the switch. So I want you to go to the website. It's bradapass.com. That's B-R-E-D-A. Bradapass.com. And I want you to find out how you can make that switch today and uh, get ready to have the official pest control provider of UGA Athletics as your pest control company and enjoy the uh, money you'll have back in your pocket when you make that decision. One more time online, it's bradapest.com, B-R-E-D-A. All right, no way not to make this awkward, but I'm going to have to communicate with my uh, – my great team of producers who try to their best to make me look halfway decent on air each and every day. The batteries in my, what we call IFB, which is how I hear, they are, they have died. Uh, apparently, I did not turn those off yesterday. And so now they have died. And so, therefore, I'm going to need some new batteries in order to be able to hear when Mike Griffith joins us. So uh, as we go around the doghouse, I'm going to give some time here. And you may see somebody on the screen. Listen, listen. at a certain point in time, you just got to be a little casual about some of this kind of stuff and sort of get that done. But I do want to do this. Uh, well, there is some really good stuff as it involves McCole Harbin out there. So let me do that around the doghouse. We'll get my batteries changed out. We'll get ready to welcome in Mike Griffith here in a moment. Obviously, we had a great time on Monday celebrating the fact that uh, McCole Hardman caught the game-winning touchdown, and now the spoils of victory are coming his way. We'll show you this on the screen here. Hardman getting the game ball. He, uh, he had put out on Twitter yesterday that uh, he had received it, and then he shared it later on to say, what a beauty. And, man, that is a beauty. Uh, I used to work – we used to do a Falcon show years ago, and I would work with uh, Chuck Smith, great guy. Now he's the outside linebackers coach with the Baltimore Ravens. I can now hear myself again. Boy, that sounds great. Uh, uh, so I appreciate our team uh, helping me out with all that. But the point is, work with Chuck, and Chuck would bring in some of the game balls that he would get. You know, the NFL, they give you the game ball. You get a chance to uh, hold on to that. And this is the Super Bowl game ball right here with the uh, logo on it. They call that the Duke that's the uh, nickname for the uh, for the ball the NFL uses, and Hardman's got that in his possession. Can you imagine how good that's going to look in a trophy case there? We obviously love seeing McColl get his just due and all that. It's also been interesting to me to watch 
the 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 chatter that has ensued post Super Bowl about the overtime rules and the allegations that the San Francisco 49ers didn't quite understand them. That's why they took possession to begin that overtime. It seems like they've made some staff moves in response to the fact that they appear to have not handled those overtime rules correctly, thinking that they scored a touchdown on the opening drive, which to be totally honest with you, that's what I thought. A lot of y'all know I am not an NFL obsessive. So um, I was under the assumption that if the 49ers had scored a touchdown, their game the game was over. They were going to win. They, they, they would have won the Super Bowl. That's what I thought the overtime rule was. I don't pretend to be some sort of genius. I'm clearly not. And so, you know, there was there, there was confusion there for that. I was massively confused. And listen, maybe I'm easy to confuse. I was massively confused at the end of the overtime, the one that Kansas City eventually scored on, the one that McColl got the game-winning catch and the game ball now in his possession for that. I was massively confused about why Kansas City wasn't in a bigger hurry than they were. I was under the assumption that um, the clock came to an end and you'd have to kick again for the second overtime. Now, maybe I should have known better than that, but I didn't. The point is, is I do think the NFL could have done a little bit better job here. I, I know they've recently changed the overtime rules, and they even kind of changed them a little bit for the playoffs, obviously. Um, I, I feel like some of the confusion around this, even the confusion involving the teams that are playing, I know Hardman had to kind of fire back because when he said he sort of blacked out, you know, people – took that to mean that he didn't know that the game was over. Hartman says that wasn't the case. He was just sort of overcome by the experience of it, and he couldn't really feel anything because of how uh, incredible of an experience that was. But the point is, one of the biggest conversations post-Super Bowl has been the lack of understanding of exactly what the overtime rules were. And I think the NFL could have done a bit better job on that. Now, it's obviously the 49ers' job to know for sure what's going on here. But I do believe they could have probably done a little bit, uh, a little bit better job with that. Either way, Chiefs get the win. Uh, Hardman gets the game ball, and that is an awesome thing to be able to see. And that is also around the doghouse here today on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Breda Pass Management. Now, we are going to talk to Mike Griffith about a lot of stuff. There's also some chatter out there about a UGA staffer, apparently no longer with the program. We'll uh, kind of talk about some of that here coming up a little bit too, and cover a lot of ground with you. So, what do you say we keep it going here right now? Fun to have him on the show. Did not have him last week. He was on vacation, but good to have him back here right now. It's Mike Griffith on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Breda Pest Management here today. From Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a DogNation.com insider. Mike, I want to talk to you about everything that's going on with UGA, including McCole Hardman. We just kind of touched on that, the sort of weirdness at Alabama, how that impacts Georgia. We were having some fun with that a moment ago, too. But late breaking, just as our show is beginning today, I believe it was Anthony Dasher, UGA Sports, who had this uh, first. Sounds like Scott Cochran is no longer with the Georgia program. You know, Cochran had the title, I guess, of special teams coordinator, but he was no longer an on-field coach. We obviously know that Cochran uh, was, you know, dealing with a little bit of uh, personal stuff and, you know, he's talked openly about his battle with uh, substance abuse. And uh, it seems like, you know, based on some messages that he's put out over the years, uh, that that has gone well for him. He celebrates some milestones, and we've celebrated those with him when that's happened. But it's also an issue, Mike, that when he stepped away, Georgia reconfigured its coaching staff. It didn't have an on-field special teams coach anymore. Teams are free to kind of organize their assistant coaches however they want. Georgia chose to split up its defensive back responsibilities, cornerback safeties, because there are so many of them on on the field at any given time. Um 
And so, therefore, you know, perhaps there's no role for Cochran on the field anymore. I, that's, I, I don't, don't know that's what's uh, happening here. But for a guy who's been in kind of that analyst role for a bit, perhaps just looking for the next phase of his professional life, either way, it certainly appears that Scott Cochran, uh, who was brought to Georgia with some fanfare because he left Alabama, no longer with the Georgia program reportedly. Any response to any of this? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit surprising. Um, you know, it'd be great if there was an explanation, but there's not. And so you really don't want to speculate, especially when you look at Coach Cochran's uh, history, health. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, family. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to you know, to hide it. I mean, George is, a, you know, a big time program under the under the microscope. Uh, it was uh, somewhat I don't want to say it was a controversial hire, but it was talked about quite a bit. This was a guy that Nick Saban wouldn't promote uh, into an on-field spot, and Kirby Smart gave him that chance. Um, unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out. Uh, that did open the door uh, for Will Muschamp to get elevated, and I thought Coach Muschamp did a great job. And uh, it appeared that you know Coach Cochran was able uh, you know to get his personal life in order. Uh, that part was publicized, as you said. Um, invited a level of scrutiny. Um, you know, it is a public position. Uh, if you're going to be a coach at Georgia, uh, you know, you're you're going to be a public figure. And therefore, you know, people are going to have a window into your life and, and have an interest in your life because you influence so many. Um, so, you know, I, again, I don't know the details of this. I hesitate to speculate. Um, but unfortunately, I'd say this was a hire that ultimately didn't work out. Yeah, and I know a lot of people who love, or I should say a lot of people, I know some people who certainly love Scott Cochran because of the time they spent around him. This is a guy who's had a big influence in a lot of people's lives. But I will say this about Georgia, is that I think it's pretty telling that for as successful of a strength coach as Cochran was at Alabama, you never really heard much of a cry from fans of, well, let's make him strength coach at Georgia because Scott Sinclair is doing such a good job in that role. And when Scott Crocker and you know had to step away, and obviously some personal things there that caused that, you know the other Georgia assistant coaches in their own roles, their own responsibilities, were taking care of that business so well. There wasn't this you know big cry of well you got to bring this guy back. I think a lot of Georgia fans really have grown to like Cochran a lot there as well. But the Georgia coaches have just been taking care of their business. Sometimes it could be as simple as that of in the numbers game of you can only have ten on field coaches. The guys that Georgia's employed, they're all doing really well. And the recruiting apparatus is functioning the way that it's supposed to. And, you know, the the development on the field is what it is. The strength and conditioning program, you can't nitpick that at all. Gosh, these guys all look like Adonis's. Um that that, you know, that 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 opportunity at Georgia, you know, once the the world had a chance to to revolve a couple of times, just never was there again. Sometimes couldn't it be just as simple as that, perhaps? I don't know. I suppose it could be. Um, maybe. I mean, you know, coaches make enough money that they can retire early. Uh, you, you don't really know. You know that Kirby was very loyal to Scott Cochran. Their friendship carried over from Alabama where he had a significant impact. Um, I would say he had a lesser impact at Georgia um, just because of the, as you mentioned, he was not the strength and conditioning coach uh, and he was not necessarily a focal point. Uh, on the recruiting trail or as a position coach. Um, you know, again, I don't, I'm not privy to his personal life, so I don't want to speculate. Uh, but I will say that Kirby Smart showed a great deal of loyalty 
and provided a fantastic opportunity for Coach Cochran. And I know that everyone at Georgia, you know, hopes and, and prays that, you know, that this is a move that works out the best for him and his family. Talked about McCole Hardman a moment ago, you know, getting getting the game ball in his possession, obviously the game-winning touchdown. Nice to see if you're a Georgia fan, you know, former Georgia guys factoring so prominently in the uh, Super Bowl there on Sunday, including Hardman now, I believe, three uh, Super Bowl rings for him, really becoming a very prolific winner at the pro football level. Uh, looked like the Super Bowl once again, Mike. Pretty good commercial for UGA overall. Yeah, right place, right time for Nicole Hardman. Um, you know, only in on – uh, I think 19 plays in the game, but he certainly made the most of them uh, with what proved to be the game-winning catch on that three-yard touchdown in the overtime. You know, I actually looked at the snap counts, Brandon. Pretty interesting. You know, Malik Herring played 18 snaps on defense, uh, had a tackle on Christian McCaffrey. And uh, on the other side of the ball, uh, Charlie Warner uh, played 42 plays for the 49ers and 27 plays for Chris Conley and 23 for Robert Beal. I want to say maybe Oklahoma was the only team that had more players on the Super Bowl rosters. That's right. Uh, so you had five Georgia Bulldogs in the Super Bowl, and then you have one that makes the game-winning touchdown catch. And it's a good story for Nicole, who started the year with the Jets, uh, signed a $4 million deal. Um, gosh, he might make as much as Carson Beck. <laughs> signed a $4 million deal in the offseason with the Jets, only made one catch. And then the Chiefs traded for him midseason and brought him back to Kansas City, which is a real – that's a testament. Um, you know, when you play for a franchise a few years, you leave, and they say, hey, we want you back. We want more McCole Hardman. Uh, and you saw why. You know, his longest catch this year uh, prior to the Super Bowl was only 37 yards. And remember, in the first half of this game, uh, he had a 52-yard catch. So uh, he had one game uh, that was more productive, I think, against the Chargers. They get seven catches for 66 yards. So uh, he picked a good time to have a big night. And to your point, um, you know, to have a Georgia Bulldog in the spotlight like that, uh, and, and a guy like McCole, who I think represents himself well, um, you know, did a talk show circuit, circuit and, you know, has some fun with that uh, jet nickname. Where's that giant jet pendulum and uh, pendant? And remember a few years ago, B.A., he showed up at the Super Bowl in a, in a jet fighter pilot suit. Yeah. So a lot a colorful and fun character. And I know a lot of Georgia fans are excited for McCole Hardman, especially over there in Elberton, right? Yeah, no doubt about that. And the other thing I talked about on Monday was, you mentioned a guy like Charlie Warner for San Francisco, Malik Herring, who we talked about in particular, uh, Robert Beal, you could say this about there too. You know, we have a tendency to focus on the glamorous part of being a well-paid football player, and obviously that's with good reason. That seems really fun and really interesting. But football is also a job. And I think one of the cool things about the Super Bowl is you see the reflection of that. You know, for someone like, you know, Beal, who was at one point in time Georgia Sack leader, but still played the here with very little fanfare. Warner, for the most part, didn't play with a ton of fanfare either. I think fans liked him. He just wasn't always in the spotlight necessarily. Malik Herring was definitely that way, a guy that was you know, kind of fighting for his role on this team the same way he's sort of fighting for a role in the NFL. But winning the fight, staying employed, earning a paycheck, grinding it out, you know, that's what football is. The majority of football players live lives like Charlie Werner and, and Malik Herring and Robert Beal, where they're just sort of fighting to be on a roster, battling it out, not always getting a ton of attention for doing that. Mike, I would say there's something kind of beautiful about that. It's kind of cool to see Georgia – you know, populating these NFL rosters with the kinds of guys who are not afraid of hard work and not afraid to kind of, I know it's a cliche to say it this way, but kind of bring a lunch pail with them and and just go out there and and grind it out and get a spot and, you know, feed their family and, and play the game without the sort of glitz and glamour that we sometimes associate with like the Patrick Mahomes and guys like that. 
Yeah, well, cutting to the chase. I mean, you know, you look at the three Bulldogs on the 49ers team, they combined for 92 snaps and 61 of those 92 snaps came on special teams. And, you know, that's something that Kirby Smart preaches at Georgia, that he puts his best players, many of his best players on special teams. And, you know, that's a skill uh, that that helps Bulldog guys get drafted. I mean, you get around to the sixth, seventh round, um, you know, guys like Robert Beal, um, you know, dime a dozen, right? Kind of tweener guys. And and what separates the guys that you're going to keep? What makes you draft that Georgia Bulldog uh, over another player from another, you know, program uh, in the sixth or seventh round or sign that guy uh, to a free agent contract and give them that opportunity? And and what gives the Georgia Bulldogs an, uh, an advantage when they're in free agent? You're not there to learn anymore, okay? And I'm not saying there's not coaching going on, but uh, you, you need to know how to play special teams. That's a, a big advantage for these guys as they're trying to make 52-man rosters, Brandon. I mean, it, that's hard to do. Uh, you think about it. It's not like college where, you know, a certain number of guys rotate out every year and and, and a new crop comes in, so to speak. Uh, these guys stick around and they want to keep their jobs. And, you know, you go into the NFL as a, a 21-year-old or I guess Stetson was 25 or, you know, with the COVID year, guys are all different ages. But But you're fighting grown men. You're fighting guys that are – you know, 26, 28, 30 years old that are trying to hold on to their jobs and you need every advantage you can get. And so that's why that Georgia pedigree means so much. Uh, that sense of urgency that Kirby Smart teaches these guys to work with. They work hard. They understand what they're working for. They have a good attitude. You know, it's like Jim Nagy told me down there at the Senior Bowl, you know, the the fact that these dogs opted in while Florida State guys were opting out Uh, That may not hit hard with the first contract uh, because they're going to evaluate these guys on what they did most of the year. But when they look for the second contract, that's where you make a really big investment in a player. And that's where that psychological profile of the player really kicks in. Uh, Does this guy love his job? Because if you're going to give somebody that really big second contract, Brandon, and you hear Kirby talk about it all the time, that's where you make your big money in the NFL is the second contract. If you're going to get – uh, that that what would that be three six uh, eight eight figure second contract they better be pretty darn sure you're not going to pull an Isaiah Wilson on them and go AWOL as soon as you cash the first check so uh, the fact that the Bulldogs opted in this is something that's going to help these guys uh, the psychological profiles these teams are taking notes Nagy said they noticed things like that uh, great value for players that have played under Kirby Smart in the Georgia program. ESPN has updated its way too early top 25. I, I think things like this are fun. Georgia stays at number one, but there's a little bit of change underneath that. And by the way, next week we're going to do something really fun here on Dog Nation Daily while I'm kind of away from work. We're going to have a little bit of a Dog Nation roundtable, bringing you and Connor Riley, Jeff Sintel all together and kind of kicking around some topics. One of the things we do talk about is that top threat to UGA, biggest contender alongside Georgia, you know, for the uh, national championship. And it's a little bit of a sort of a preview to that. When you see Ohio State now number two in the preseason ESPN ranking here, moving up from number five, when you see Oregon around there, when you see the chatter around Alabama, like, like, what do you think? I mean, we've obviously had plenty of time to sort of think about Georgia and we'll continue to have that conversation. But what do you think right now about what's happening around Georgia in this sort of early preseason prognostications that are taking place? Well, you know, the expanded SEC, first and foremost, and there's a trip to Texas that's going to be really challenging in the middle of October. It's going to be challenging for fans to travel to. I think it's going to be a a challenging game for Georgia. Of course, they do play in Tuscaloosa as well. 
Uh, and they open see open the season with Clemson. So, you know, the, you know, at Old Miss later in the year, it's a challenging schedule, Brandon. We saw how it wore Georgia down last year. I think the schedule cost Georgia a national championship last year. And it's ironic because at the beginning of the year, all anybody wanted to talk about was how easy Georgia's schedule was. But then you look down the stretch and they played a top 10 Missouri. And then they played an Ole Miss team that, you know, I think beat Penn State in a bowl game. And then they played a Tennessee team that, you know, really slaughtered Iowa. I mean, they played three straight top 25 teams. And then they played a Georgia Tech team that, as we know, was no pushover, uh, that essentially had their playbook and, and had that stinger sharp on a, on a you know bad weather night with some very favorable officiating. I mean, that was as difficult of a November schedule as anybody in the nation played, uh, both in terms of the talent of the teams they played and the nature of the physical and the physical nature of it. Not to mention the last two games were also away games. So it was a little bit even more on those kids. Uh, we knew that Ladd and Brock Bowers weren't a hundred percent. Well, maybe nobody is, but with those two, it was particularly noticeable. And so they lost by three points. And uh, you know, I dare say that maybe if they had a different November schedule, a little bit lighter. Um, you know, maybe they're not quite as worn down. I don't know what your perception was, Brandon, but that looked like a tired Georgia team against Alabama. They really looked like they lacked some zip. I mean, even Carson looked kind of weak. He underthrew Arian Smith on a ball where Arian was wide open. And if Carson puts it on the money at seven, instead they settle for three. Um, there, there were just some things that made Georgia look tired and off. And I think the schedule had a lot to do with that. And so I, I don't take that lightly. Um, I think playing in the SEC is really hard. And I used to be an advocate uh, for them to play nine league games. You know, I said, you know what? Yeah, I want to see that. That's better. But after seeing what happened to Georgia last year and the toll that that November schedule uh, took on them and how tired, uh, they just looked a half a step off against Bama. They didn't look nearly as, as crisp or as effective as they did when they beat Ole Miss or when they beat Tennessee or when they you know dominated Florida State. That Georgia team looked fresh and crisp. The team we saw against Alabama looked slowed and, and, and a little beat up to me. Uh, and so I'm a little concerned about the SEC schedule, and I don't think it needs to go to nine games. I think eight is plenty, especially if Georgia's going to insist on playing a, an improved Georgia Tech team in the last game of the year. I think those jackets are going to leave some bruises and leave a mark. Even if Georgia dominates them on the scoreboard, it's a robbery game. I don't like that game there. I've told you that before. I think it's a dangerous game in terms of the physicality and the way Tech seems to play chippy, hurt guys, beat them up a little bit. Um, so I, I'm a little concerned with that's what I see when I look at Georgia's schedule. And now now we're talking about a 12 team playoff. So on the one hand, you say, well, you know, you've got a little bit more of a margin for error to get into the playoff. And that's true. But if you're not one of the championship teams in your league, you've got an extra playoff game. And that's that's even more wear and tear on you. So to me, I think the wear and tear of being an SEC team, even while I think Georgia is the number one team going in, I think Ohio State or Oregon actually have an easier path because I don't think the Big Ten is as physical week in and week out as the SEC is. And I think that that could be a factor come the 12-team playoff. If Georgia, if we were to wave a magic wand and all of a sudden they disappear, they don't, they don't exist for this question. If Georgia doesn't win the national championship, who would be your most likely non-Georgia team that 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 would this year? The team with the highest payroll. I mean, Ohio State. I mean, they're, you know, they're out there and they're paying a lot of money for players. 
Um, again, I don't know if they got anybody driving a Lamborghini, but they're spreading it out pretty good. I mean, it's pretty well documented, you know, that how aggressive they were in the portal and how much money they spent sprinkled out over a number of stars. I don't think their quarterback is making what Carson Beck is, but I think if you look at their roster, um, you know, they added the old Miss running back, right? Uh, I think they added a Kansas State quarterback, uh, Will Howard. Uh, they added, you know, Caleb Downs, maybe uh, outbid Georgia, uh, you know, for that. And you wonder, you know, that that's where the whole, you know, back contract kind of makes me wonder, like, well, what if you put a little bit more money into Downs and a little bit less into Carson? And would Carson have still you – know, that's where the management of the money and, – and that's what we don't know, Brandon. We don't know. That's That's the missing part. And I think that's the frustration. I think everybody's moved past players getting paid. Yes, they're getting paid. They Listen, they were always getting paid. Like Jimbo Fisher said, there was NIL before there was NIL. We just didn't know it, okay? Now it's more pronounced, but we still don't see the payroll. We don't see the budget like we do in the NFL and everybody's got a salary cap. We can see what this guy signed for and that guy signed for it and what sets the market. You know, when one quarterback makes this, this sets the market for the next. We don't see that in college football. So it's it's very wild, wild west in terms of what is everyone getting and what is the payroll distribution. And, you know, again, that's to me, that's that's where the danger of a of a of a visible, highly purchased car can rock a locker room. Because if you just if you don't know what anybody's making, I think it's a lot easier for go to work to go to work. Right. I mean, it'd be like if you pulled up to a dog nation meeting in a Bentley or something, which you don't, which you don't, you know, you're not that guy. But I'm just saying, you know, you see, you know, the importance of team chemistry. And so that's why this is such an interesting time. And it's so important to have strong leadership like Kirby Smart, who knows how to manage a locker room. You know, I saw Nazir Stackhouse. I'll probably do a post on this. He got a deal with JBL. He's handing these things out to everybody on the team. Now, that's good. That's good NIL stuff, right? So uh, getting back to your original question, uh, Ohio State has a lot of money to work with. They've got a lot of resources. I think we get the feeling that Dan Lanning has a lot of resources at Oregon, or else why wouldn't he go to Alabama, right? That tells me that Dan Lanning feels like he has everything he needs. And, And for those who don't know, and I think most people do know, University of Oregon has a very close relationship uh, with Nike uh, because their headquarters are there. And Phil Knight, one of the co-founders, is a big Oregon donor. That's why their facilities are so great and why I would imagine that they're very competitive in NIL dealings, right? We know Georgia's competitive. We wonder a little bit about Alabama. I think we wonder what's going on there. It looks like things are coming apart a little bit. But boom, in comes Texas. I mean, uh, they had a Lamborghini guy, too. I think didn't B. John Robinson have a Lamborghini, the running back? So they're very well healed and have a lot of money. They also have a huge, um, gosh, I forget what that's called, the the, the money they get every year. Uh, things like $41 billion and AM's $15 billion. Georgia might be three and Bama's around three. Um, gosh, that's slipping my mind. The endowment. Called. Is, is, the endowment, yeah. correct. And you can say that, well, that's not directed at athletics. Well, maybe not, but because it's directed at academics, that means they can direct more towards athletics. I mean, to me, it all kind of comes out of one pot. So when I look at college football now, unfortunately, um, I'm going to consider the amount of money that the school has more than I ever had before. I'm going to consider the corporate relationships and the potential for that. 
um, that these schools have. I think that makes a big difference. I think that's why Florida State is struggling a little bit. I think that's why Clemson is dipped down. They don't have the corporate, uh, you know, where Tallahassee and Clemson, South Carolina aren't exactly, you know, metropolitan areas like in Austin, Texas, like a Columbus, Ohio, or even Athens, you know, with its um, relative close proximity to Atlanta, Knoxville, Tennessee, you know, uh, Lincoln to Brad, who knows, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Dylan Rayola, you know, will win five or six games up there with all the money they have uh, around Omaha, Nebraska. So to me, I, I look at the payroll. I, I've got to look at the payroll. I don't want to look at it that way, Brandon, but I think there's a reason why Chip Kelly uh, bolted UCLA to be an OC at Ohio State. I think he knows that the Buckeyes are pretty loaded. We have, I'll finish with this. We have talked a lot this week about the Ryan Grubb situation, going back to Seahawks, and uh, made pretty clear that I didn't like that. Now, listen, I like stirring the pot with Alabama, so I would have fun with this no matter what. But just because I want to do it doesn't mean that it isn't true. And in this particular case, I do believe that uh, Kalen DeBoer has acted, the best that I can tell, in a dishonorable way. I think recruits would be wise to pay attention to this. And I think uh, Alabama ought to be careful not to do this kind of thing again right because i mean it's it's fairly obvious they wanted to keep their players in the dark but the fact that that grub was probably leaving running out the clock on the transfer portal window that they had because of nick saban's retirement uh this is just i believe at face value a bad thing that alabama has done do you agree with that I, I do, and I think it's poor leadership. I, I think it's I think it reflects poorly on Greg Byrne. It shows you how much control Nick Saban had, and um, you know it, it makes you value Josh Brooks at Georgia all that much more. Um, you know, it, it's like a, a good AD. You don't really notice them if they're doing their job. You only notice them when things fall apart. And you know, to me, it, it shows uh, you know what a poor job Greg Byrne did uh, evaluating the Kalen DeBoer as a potential candidate. The guy can't keep his staff. And, and that's a big factor for a guy like this. I mean, this isn't Kirby Smart or Nick Saban who've proven they can replace coordinators and coaches and continue to win championships. This is a guy that had a successful two-year run at Washington with a magical quarterback that had a Michael Jordan touch on his throws. Um, you know, what he did at Fresno State was was not special. I mean, he was very ordinary there. He was three and three in a COVID year. And I think he went nine and four, eight and four, something like that, which, oh, by the way, they won more games the next year after he left and they'd won more before he got there. So other than the, the run at Sioux Falls where he was 67 and three in the NAIA ranks, I think he's a bit of an imposter, Brandon. And, and I think he's in over his head. And the fact that Greg Byrne uh, allowed for some of these transactions that you talked about, the way Alabama held these, these coaches just long enough so for the transfer window to expire. Um, you know, like I said yesterday on, on uh, WJOX in Birmingham, um, this, this may not trickle into the fans. The fans may not care. And, and they didn't, based on the way they attacked me on Twitter. Check that out for fun, at Mike Griffith 32 You can see the Alabama fans are still out there, and their fangs are as sharp as ever. Uh, all I did was speak the truth and say that this is an institution that went from, you know, what many considered uh, one of the gold standards programs in the country to a real questionable place now, as you mentioned, with some of the ethics um, and some of the actions and the way they've uh, maybe uh, misled players on their team about staff members you know, to take advantage of those players so that they wouldn't go into the portal. And if Alabama does not have success next year, it can come apart fast. And listen, I've seen this movie before. I was covering Alabama when Gene Stallings was the head coach and Coach Stallings retired and Mike Dubos took over. I covered that transition. 
I saw Alabama go from a team that beat Michigan in an Outback Bowl, a Michigan team that would go undefeated the next year and win a title, into a 4-7 and team with Mike DuBose, with many of the exact same players and the same staff members. And I'll tell you what it had to do with. It had to do with the lack of harmony on the staff. Believe it or not, story for another day, they hired Bruce Arians, right? Future NFL Coach of the Year. Well, let me tell you, when they hired Bruce Arians, that staff did not like it. And they did not cooperate. And Alabama went from a bowl team and a championship contender under Gene Stallings to a 4-7 and team with many of the same players, including future NFL MVP Sean Alexander and future Outland Trophy and College Football Hall of Famer Chris Samuels. There was a lot of NFL talent. But when the staff is not harmonious and people don't like one another, that bad things can happen quickly. So, you know, I know that one of the things we're going to talk about next week, and I can't wait uh, to see what everybody says, is that Alabama over under. Uh, I think I've given you a few hints on which direction I'm leaning. Mike, uh, thank you for being on the show today. And as you said, we'll have a lot of you on the uh, program next week, which I certainly appreciate your time for. uh, And we'll look forward, of course, having you back here on Dog Nation Daily again very soon there as well. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate it, man. Yes, sir. Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC Through. All right, uh, interesting from Mike. Let's get ready to go cruising around the SEC now, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And, boy, we cannot wait to be on board. Uh, Allure of the Seas for our Dog Nation cruise. Man, that is coming up soon, and it is going to be a great, great time. And we want you to be a part of it there as well. Jessica Slater is a great travel agent. The one thing when I talk to Jessica, she'll tell you, we are down to crunch time on this. It is go time, show time to have you on board and ready to go for our Dog Nation crew. So once you give her a call, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. You can also email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. You can check out the website, royaldogs.com. Of course, dog spelled the way it's supposed to be, D-A-W-G-S. Here's the thing you need to understand. It's bigger and better than it's ever been before. So many of you signed up, ready to go. Others of you are kind of in those final phases of making the decision to be a part of it. It's going to be a choice that you're not going to regret here because we've never had a Dog Nation cruise before on a uh, Oasis-class ship among the largest there at sea with all the neighborhoods. If you're watching on video, you see Central Park. This is from Icon of the Seas. But uh, Allure of the Seas has a Central Park as well. These, These really cool, specialty neighborhoods so that when you're walking through them, it almost feels like you're not at sea. You know, when you're not, when you're on Icon, you know, walking through Central Park makes you sort of feel like you're in the middle of a big city or somewhere like that, but you're actually on a ship floating on the ocean. It's the same way when you're upstairs and the pool deck area and you go to the Category 6 water park. It's the largest water park at sea. It's almost like you're in like a theme park or something like that. And a lot of this stuff is really kind of themed out really cool. You've got the, the thunder sound effects and things like that. And you could convince yourself you were on land and having a land-based experience uh, if you didn't just look out and see the ocean. That's how cool a lot of these neighborhoods are on a ship like Icon of the Seas. And Allure of the Seas for us is really going to be in so many ways the same way. More restaurants for you to explore, more bars and lounges, of course. The Dog Nation crew, uh, you know they want all of that, including the Trellis Bar uh, that you kind of get a look at there. And that's also Bubbles the Champagne Bar as well. Uh, just so many cool things to uh, be a part of. And that's one of the Dog Nation crews. Going to be so much fun. Allure of the Seas in April, going to NASA on the Bahamas. Perfect day, Coco K. Okay. And having a great time with you there as well. Jessica Slater wants to help you out with all of that. Once again, call her, 770-718-9147. Email jslater at dreamvacations.com. So I'm going to talk briefly here for a moment about the way-too-early Top 25 re-release from Mark Schlebaugh there at ESPN.com because I am kind of interested 
in what's happening around George at the moment. And as Mike Griffith alluded to, alluded to, there is no doubt that the energy in the offseason right now kind of belongs with Ohio State. And as we've said before, competition is a very powerful thing. And it kind of leads to a weird paradox where you don't want your rival to be good. We revel in the fact that, you know, Georgia's biggest rival, Florida, is an absolute mess right now. You don't want your rival to be good. But when your rival is good, oftentimes it brings out the best in you. And Ohio State's biggest rival is Michigan. Michigan is the reigning national champion. And so, therefore, Ohio State finds an entirely different level of motivation than they've had in the past to go out and be the best they can this year. For Ryan Day, this is also personal. I would say he has a chance to lose his job this season. If things don't go well, he wins most of his games, but he has not won the ones that matter. And that's obviously you know, a, a tough recipe for long-term employment at a place like Ohio State. Uh, you know, some of the exaggerated stuff here about NIL, you know, I kind of roll my eyes at because of, but there's no doubt that Ohio State has been a big spinner this offseason. You can say what you want to about some of the facts and the figures and the, the sort of lack of veracity in some of those claims, but you can't deny that Ohio State has been a very aggressive NIL team. That's certainly true. They have remade their roster in some respects in the process of that. As we've said over and over, while money can buy you a lot, there are some things that money can't buy. And and one on the one hand, that's the sort of idea of like the sort of gritty physical and mental toughness that Ohio State's oftentimes lacking. But also, even within the sort of player personnel part of this, there seems to be some things that money can't buy. Ohio State does not have a very good offensive line. You know, the, the sort of transfer portal addition there is Seth McLaughlin, who we're not going to kick around too much here, but you kind of all know the story of how it is that McLaughlin leaving Alabama after a pretty rough Rose Bowl performance, even has a chance to be at a place like Ohio State. Buckeyes, even with their willingness to spend big right now, allegedly are still going on a sort of a couple-year journey of not having enough offensive linemen and certainly not having enough quality offensive linemen in the program. That's an issue. I kind of circle back to Texas here a little bit, who actually drops in the way too early top 25. But there comes a point in... I think our ongoing discussions about college football where things that have been true for a while, eventually they just sort of change. And, you know, perhaps you would say, well, I haven't seen enough yet to say for sure that things truly have changed with Texas. But the fact is this team a year ago went on the road and it won convincingly at Alabama. That was a very big win for the program. It's the kind of thing that big time programs do. Texas prior to that had not been a big time program. Uh, until this past season, they had won the Big 12 since 2009. This was a team, the whole Texas is back name and the fun that people had with that was justified. This was a team that was consistently year over year overrated. I don't quite feel that way to me anymore. This feels like a very substantial competitor to UGA. I would have told you last season, the 2023 season, the toughest team that Georgia could have played would have been Texas. I believe that's probably still true for 2024 as well. And obviously Georgia travels there in October. More on all of that coming next week with some of the roundtable stuff that we're going to do. Interesting announcement from ESPN yesterday uh, about an extension for the college football playoff and like $1.7 billion in total, I think. It's 100 and something million per game, I guess, they're going to pay for the, the right to televise this. ESPN also has a chance, this is getting into the weeds, to sort of sublet some of these games off to other networks if they want to, but ESPN gets a chance to control the contract. And obviously, one of the things, because ultimately, this contract seems like an eye-popping number, but the truth is, compared to other sports on TV, kind of isn't. It's about, I think, what you know, you're know you seeing for 
like say Peacock's chance to televise a NFL playoff game this year, kind of in keeping with that. Uh, if anything, you can make case that ESPN perhaps could have ponied up a little bit more money for the exclusivity here in the college football playoff. The number could have been even higher than it was. So this itself is a huge number reflecting the value of college football on television, but it's not sort of way out of bounds for what people sort of expected from a deal like this. But one of the things that it is going to do is sort of further push that conversation of why is it this sport does things the way that it does? We do live in a player compensation age. We didn't used to, at least above the table, but we do now. And yet the system would say this money can't be used to pay players. That money needs to come from boosters instead. And I do believe that stuff like this is going to create more energy around the discussion of, well, exactly why is that? Why do boosters have to sort of dig deep and reduce their net worth to pay players? Why can't players just be paid from this money? Um, I, I do think questions like that are going to be asked a little bit more. But the one thing I would caution on on this, we talked about this as it related to the Orange Bowl. You know, the Orange Bowl had however many players opting out from, you know, Florida State, yet the game still had 10 million viewers. You know, this idea that, well, it's the players who generate all this revenue for college football. That's why, you know, the TV contract's worth nearly $2 billion. Well, the players sat out the Orange Bowl. They literally didn't show up to work and nobody noticed. So I would say that their overall leverage in terms of, if you want me to play in the bowl game, you need to pay me. I'd say that's somewhat reduced, you know, based on the actual results with the TV ratings ended up being. And in terms of the discussion of, well, who is it that actually generates all this value to make the TV games worth what they're worth? This is where I think the conversation gets really tricky. Ultimately, college football is an institution, a very lucrative, very viable institution that is viewed as important is the wrong word. Important is too soft of a word. It's viewed as so extraordinarily important by so many people. And nobody really knows why that is. America is the only place that even has anything like this. There is nothing in any other country in the world that sort of feels like college athletics. It is a uniquely American thing. And as we said before, it's also one of those things that sort of sits at its own lunch table by itself. It's not full-fledged professional sports. People don't seem to want that. At least a lot of people don't seem to want that. It's also not the sort of old-school amateur sports the way you think of, like, say, the U.S. Amateur Golf Tournament or Bobby Jones or something along those lines. It's not quite that either. There's just too much money for that to be true. But it's its own thing. To try to make it all amateur or all professional is just sort of not quite what it is. It's sort of its own thing, and it's still incredibly popular. And in the way we go about figuring out how do you compensate the players for their participation in something that's this popular – I do think it's important to be careful not to destroy the institution that is viewed as so valuable because if you pick at it too much, you can break it to the point where you no longer know how to put it back together. That is a possible thing that could happen. Uh, there's also some talk here as it relates to the college ball playoff about the format changing. It seems like that's going to happen. Uh, going from what was supposed to be what they call a 6-6 model, six teams get automatic bids, six teams get at large. The absence of the Pac-12 certainly seems like we're moving to the 5-7 five automatic bids, seven at-larges. Also, it seems like there's a lot of push. Ross Dellinger's got more reporting on this. SEC and Big Ten want a greater share of the revenue. I think the SEC is touting the number right now. They've had like 40% of the playoff teams over the course of the last 10 years, but like a far smaller portion of the overall revenue. So there's going to be more discussion about you know changes there on that. That causes my eyes to sort of gloss over a little bit. 
But that's a discussion that is coming. And then Tennessee was in court yesterday as well. Once again, sort of fighting for that injunction. I think it's, it's an injunction. Is that the right word? I'm not a, a lawyer. They're essentially trying to slow down the NCAA's ability to investigate Tennessee for things that are essentially legal now. This is one of those deals where I like seeing Tennessee be in trouble. I think that's kind of funny. But, boy, it becomes really, really hard to understand, like, why the NCAA is choosing to make such make such a big deal out of something that's essentially all just legal now. So the whole thing is pretty strange, and Tennessee is continuing its fight there on that in court. And we will make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And before we wrap up here today, let me give a shout-out to our friends at the Finnish Long Drink. Uh, Valentine's tonight. Hey, no better way to take care of that special someone in your life Instead of give them the like, little heart candies, things like that, give them what they really want. Uh, instead of a box of candy, give them a case of the finished long drink. All the different varieties, let them choose the one that's right for them. How about the long drink cranberry? It's sort of reddish color, kind of reminds you of a little bit of a Valentine heart. That might be the way to go here tonight. Or the long drink strong, 8.5% alcohol by volume. Maybe that's what you need to really get the, the Valentine night going. Uh, who am I to judge on that? Uh, long drink zero, no carbs, no sugar. Long drink, uh, traditional. Listen, if, if you're like me, you're sort of a classic guy. You know, you sort of, uh, you know, old school in some respects. Take it back to the original, the one that started it all, the long drink traditional, the blue can, the grapefruit flavor, the gin kick. I promise you, uh, that's going to make for a wonderful uh, Valentine's night for you uh, with your special someone. So uh, try it and see, and uh, come back and tell me how right I was. Happy Valentine's to all of you. Enjoy the finished long drink as you were enjoying a date night tonight or anything else. And, of course, you can find out more at thelongdrink.com. Once again, that is thelongdrink.com for a lot more on that. And a couple of golden shoes to wrap us up here today. We'll show the first one on the screen. And I will confess something here for a moment that I'm not always great at, a, like, promotion. I'm a little bit of a carnival barker. But I don't always promote myself very much for whatever reason. And so some of you are always really kind to share the show. And I really appreciate that, including Stephen Weinwright, who has been doing this for years. Stephen's truly a great guy that he's willing to do this here. Shared the show yesterday on X saying, another great show brought to you by Brandon Adams. Stephen, I tell you, I just appreciate that so much. And to all of you who do your own version of that, thank you very much. We've never really been too out there in terms of, oh, click like or give us a review. We probably should. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do, uh, but some of you are just kind enough to do that for us, even without us asking. And so, Stephen, I really, really appreciate all of that. And speaking of the uh, finished long drink, how about a golden shoe going out to Dina Pruitt there on that? Uh, because a lot of folks have been hearing about this peach-flavored version of the finished long drink, and it's been so popular, not always easy to, to find. So Dina writes in to say, I guess I have to take back all those times I called you a liar. She's talking to me. Because most recently, uh, today, because I have found that peach flavor of the finished long drink, it does exist, and it's in Bethlehem, Georgia, no less. So Dina found it uh, right there in uh, Bethlehem, Georgia, the peach-flavored version of the finished long drink. How great does that case look right there? And she does uh, give us a hashtag golden shoe in the process. So, Dina, we'll give you a golden shoe, and more importantly, we're glad you found that peach-flavored version of the finished long drink. Now, on the other hand, lousy stinking gators right now, They've got nothing to toast. They've got nothing to be happy about. It's been, how about this, 1,194 days since they've beaten Georgia. That is misery they must wallow in each and every day. And if that doesn't put a little bit of a smile on your face, I don't quite know what to tell you. That is our Gatorade Updater. 
Thank you all of you for being here today. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Dog Nation Daily presented by Breda Pest Management.